Before I had children, I knew everything about parenting. You could ask me anything. I could tell you exactly what the parent needed to do. If your child does something wrong, you discipline them. It's that easy. It's that simple. I don't know why y'all are chuckling. I used to get frustrated uh, by parents who counted to three before doing something. That doesn't bother me anymore as long as the parent follows through. That's a whole other thing. If you count to three and then count to three again, and then, okay, that's a side, that's a side trail there. Not following through is a different issue. But the reason counting to three doesn't bother me like it did before I had children is because raising kids is not simple. Sometimes it's right to give a child some grace. Sometimes it's good to show some mercy and patience instead of having a quick trigger finger. And perhaps counting to three allows the parent to do that and allows that patience for the child. You may count to three, you may not, I don't care. I'm just, there's a balance. After becoming a father, I had to try and learn that delicate balance between patience and punishment. Still don't know it. Still mess up. Thankfully for us all, our Heavenly Father knows exactly where the proper balance lies. He is so patient with us. Yet when it is time for discipline or judgment, you better believe He will follow through. Our text this morning is in Amos chapter 7. I'll wait about 30 minutes and let y'all find Amos. <laughs> While you're looking for Amos chapter 7, I'll just say this, because um, we're jumping in, but um, Amos is considered a minor prophet, which is kind of a misnomer, right? There are no minor prophets. It doesn't mean he was uh, too young to vote. Doesn't mean he was unimportant. Um, nothing like that. The, the only reason we call some of these guys minor prophets, it's simply because they didn't write as much. Amos is shorter than Isaiah. That's all, that's all that that terminology means. It's really not a good, it's really not good terminology. He is considered a minor prophet, though. We'll be in Amos chapter 7 this morning. We're going to see three visions that God gave Amos about potential judgment coming upon the nation of Israel. And the first two visions would not come to pass. But the third would. Not exactly the same, but maybe a little bit like a parent counting to three before the judgment comes. Our focus this morning is that I want you to be thankful that God is so patient with sinners. But understand and be warned that he will bring judgment when it's the right time. Um, We'll read some of our texts in just a minute, but I want to give a quick background about Amos. God called this man Amos to be a prophet long after the nation of Israel had split or divided into two kingdoms. So you had the northern kingdom still called Israel uh, in the north, and in the south you had the kingdom of Judah. Uh, sadly, even though these two kingdoms were brothers, they didn't always get along. Okay, they weren't always friendly to each other. They weren't always doing the same things. And that's part of what makes Amos so interesting. Amos was actually from the southern kingdom of Judah. God called him as a prophet and sent him to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so in a way, he was sort of like a missionary in a foreign land, taking God's message, not really sure the, the, the reception he was going to have, you know, unaware of how he would be treated. And to make matters worse, I guess we could say it that way, 
or more interesting, is the message that God gave him was going to be one of judgment if the people refused to repent. Because the northern kingdom of Israel, more than the southern kingdom of Judah, at least at this point, they had largely turned away from God. They were serving false gods. They had built false temples. They oppressed the poor. They were very greedy people. They were dishonest in their business dealings. They were sexually immoral. They were blasphemous. You can read some of these indictments in Amos chapter 2 if you'd like to do that early, uh, later today. Amos chapter 2, he details all of this. And so Amos is tasked with this, with this tough task of marching into unfriendly territory with a message that's probably going to be unpopular. But it was the message the people needed. So we're jumping into chapter 7 this morning. We're going to see three visions that God gave this prophet. Let's look at the first three verses and see this first vision. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be said the Lord. Let's stop and talk about this first vision of the locusts. Um, but before we jump into the locusts and actually what he saw, I want to point out a few things about the first part of verse one that we don't need to overlook. There's, there's two things that are worth pointing out. First, if you look at this, the first part of verse one, sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll see the word Lord in all capital letters. You may have noticed that in your Bible. And the reason that English translations capitalize this word is actually to indicate that it's not the Hebrew word for Lord. You say, that's kind of odd, right? It's not the Hebrew word for master if it's all capitalized. If it is in all capital letters, it means it's from the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. So, uh, don't think the Bible's yelling at you if it's in all capital letters or that it's trying to emphasize something there. It's, it's in all capital letters to show you that this is not the generic term for a Lord, but it is specifically the name of the self-existing creator of the universe, Yahweh. But what happens if the actual word for Lord or master shows up in the same context as the name Yahweh? What do we do then? Well, we have that here, and you notice your English translation probably capitalizes the word God instead of the word Lord. That's why that happens here. That's why God is in all capital letters. And when we see this, the Bible is emphasizing God's sovereignty. You could quite literally translate or read this phrase as the Lord Yahweh, Master Yahweh, even Sovereign Yahweh. And this is important in this text, in this context, because this is a context of judgment. We're getting three visions of judgment coming upon the nation of Israel. And it's important to understand that God has the power and the authority to do that. He is the creator and sovereign ruler of this universe and has every right to judge. And it's so important for Amos that if you just glance through our text this morning, you will see this phrase, Lord Yahweh, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. And maybe another one that I missed. 
It is so important for us to understand God's sovereign authority here. Second point I want to mention before we move into the vision is that this is so simple, but Amos says, this is what the Lord God showed me. The only message that Amos is going to give the people is what God showed him. Nothing more and nothing less. This is what he showed me. And since God is the sovereign authority, Amos has no authority to change that message. Amos is not sovereign over the message. He cannot invent his own. He's only authorized to tell the people what God tells him. And if we want to make an application to modern day preachers and churches, the same is true for us. We have no authority to change the Bible. We cannot change the gospel's message. We can't invent one of our own, even though times are changing and people are... Uh, their, their feathers are ruffling at the message of the Bible. We have no business and no authority to change it. The only difference is we don't receive visions. We've received the Bible. We have God's written word and it must continue to be our source of teaching, our source of preaching because it's the only message that has the power to convict people. It's the only message that can save people and that can change people. It's the only message backed by the authority of the sovereign God. So this sovereign God gave Amos this vision. He's relaying it to the people. And this first vision, Amos saw God making locusts. And there was something about the specific timing of the release of these locusts that really bothered and surprised Amos. Notice this word behold uh, a couple times in the verse. He said, behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So the timing of the year here, the latter growth happened in the spring. If crops were destroyed at that time, there's going to be no hope of harvest no hope of recovery because the hot and dry summer months are coming. Israel is um, similar to Arkansas weather, somewhat depending on where you're at in Israel. So you know how hot and dry the summer months can be. If the crops are destroyed now, it's going to be a bad year. And so the locusts are formed during that time. Amos does say it's after the king's mowings, which is interesting. This phrase, the king's mowings, probably just refers to the king already got his share of the crops. Okay, there's no specific law about this in the Old Testament, but Samuel did warn the people that if you really want a king, let me tell you what it's going to mean. He's going to tax you. Okay, governments need taxes. You really want a king? He's going to take your men. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your women. He's going to take your, your grain. And he's not wrong to do that. It's just I want you to know what's coming. So the king has already got his, his cut which means also the first fruits should have been offered to God. I don't know if Israel would have done that, but those two things should have happened. Now the people wait for their own harvest. And if these locusts are released after these initial crops are gathered in and they destroy all the grass, all the, all the, all the plants and everything, it's going to mean famine that year. 
And it's going to mean a lot of suffering and probably a lot of death. We understand that. And so in verse two, the obvious outcome occurred. The locust ate it all. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, locusts aren't very choosy. They're going to eat. Amos was devastated by the devastation, right? He begged God to forgive Israel, which we're kind of outside the story here. That might seem like an obvious response. Oh, beg, beg for God to forgive them. It's not a given. Remember, he's not from Israel. He's from Judah. They are not always friendly with each other. So human nature might be for us to say, good, give them what they deserve, God. They're sorry sinners. They're not worshiping you anyway. You sent me to declare judgment, so serves them right. Can you think of a prophet who was kind of like that? Jonah was a lot like that, wasn't he? He relished the fact that God was going to judge his enemy, the Assyrians. But when they repented and God forgave them, do you remember what Jonah did? He was furious. Amos is not like Jonah at all. Amos does not relish in someone else's judgment. He felt compassion. He felt compassion for his brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel called Jacob here. And he pleaded on their behalf because he knew they couldn't survive this. He said, they're so small. They're not worthy of forgiveness. They're just little. <laughs> Please don't do this. And so in verse three, God answered Amos' prayer. Verse three reads, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. It's interesting to me that it does not specifically say that God forgave them but he did show more patience and decided to stay the judgment, which is just like God being so patient. Now, I want to talk for a minute about this word relented here in verse three. Or if you have the King James translation, it says repented. Um, I can't remember what some other translations use, but normally when we read the word repented, what do we think of? We think of men who need to repent because they've done something wrong. Normally when you read the word repent, it refers to a turnaround, uh, a, a direction change where, um, especially in the context of sinfulness, you are, you are sinning, you're doing something wrong, but there's some sorrow, there's some conviction, and you have the desire to turn around, to change, to, to walk from that sin and walk towards righteousness. It, and it is that turnaround. But God has no sin. God never needs to turn around. So how can he repent if he's never done anything wrong? Understand that this is a completely different Hebrew word than the one that describes the turnaround of man's repentance. It is not the same word. That's why some modern translations use the word relent instead of the word repent. But still, what does that mean? <laughs> what do we mean when somebody relents or what are we talking about? This is a beautiful thing in the Old Testament. At its core, this Hebrew word has the idea of a deep breath. That is something people do to display their feelings. One author says, usually sorrow, compassion, or comfort. So, if you're sorrowful, what might you do? 
If you're compassionate towards someone else's suffering, what might you do? If you want to comfort them, come here. We breathe deeply often to show different emotions. That's the word here. So what happened is when Amos begged God to forgive, God let out a deep breath, an almighty sigh of compassion and sorrow for his people, and he stayed judgment. He was moved. The same word is used in Jonah chapter 3 when he forgave Nineveh. Okay. I'll be patient. If you're a parent, you've probably done that, right? You were ready to discipline, only to look down at your child and you saw the puppy dog eyes, you know? Don't do it again. Yes, sir. That's what God did here. God is not some angry judge who loves flexing his muscles of justice all the time. Multiple times in Ezekiel, God said that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn, repent, and, and turn to him. God delights in, in repentance. And so here it wasn't that Israel repented. There's nothing about Israel here. This is about Amos and God. But God did take a deep breath and display some patience, which would hopefully give Israel some more time to repent. Let's look at verse four through six in the second vision. It's different from the first, not completely different in its message, um, but there's a little more intensity here. Verse four through six says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Well, this time, instead of the locusts, Amos saw a judgment by fire, which was so intense that he even mentions it was devouring up the great deep and eating up the land. Now you think about that in, in comparison to the locusts. Locusts are going to be destructive, but they're not going to drink up all the water. So at least you have water. But this fire is such a scorching mess that it is, it is consuming water. It is going to burn up the land. It's going to be a more intense judgment than the locusts. So with that disaster being worse than the first, it's really not surprising that Amos sort of reacts the same way now that we understand Amos a little bit. He begs once again for God to, to stop. This time he doesn't ask God to forgive them. He just says, please stop. Please cease. Please, please stay this judgment. I think it's interesting to know that in both of these first visions, Amos did not base his prayer upon anything worthy about Israel. They weren't worthy to be forgiven. He, he doesn't bargain with God and say, Lord, but at least they're not doing this, or God, don't do that. They're not that bad. God, they're... He doesn't do any of that. He just, he just pleads to God. Just please forgive, they're small. Please forgive, they're... Please stop, they're little. They don't deserve you to stop, just... So he just prayed for God's help. Once again, we have the same word 
in verse six, the God repented, he relented. It's that same word. He took that deep, loving, compassionate breath of concern for his people. And in his infinite wisdom, he stayed his judgment. This was all because of the intercessory prayer of Amos. If you don't think prayer is powerful, I don't know how you're going to explain these two visions and what Amos did for the people here. Prayer is very powerful in our lives, but we also need to forget that we need to pray for other people too, and it can be powerful in their lives. Now, Amos cannot repent for Israel, right? He cannot believe for them. He can't make decisions for them, but he can pray for God to be patient. He can pray for God to forgive them and, and stay the judgment for some time, hoping that that patience will lead them to repentance. And we should be doing the same in our lives. I can't make anyone's decision for them. I can't, I can't force anybody to repent. I can't force anybody to believe the Lord. I can't make decisions for you. But I can pray for God to be patient with you. And you please pray for God to be patient with me. And stay any any judgment that we may bring on ourselves. We need more time to repent. Amos did that twice for Israel. But then we get to verse seven and verse nine, or verse seven through verse nine, and we'll read this in just a moment. The third vision's a little different. Not only will you not see Amos pray here, Amos won't say anything this time, but there's also no specifics in the vision about the type of judgment so much. There's no locusts, no fire. This vision is actually less about the judgment itself and more about proving that the judgment is right. Look at verse seven through verse nine. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. I always laugh every time I read that. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So this vision began with the Lord standing beside a wall and he's holding a plumb line in his hand. Anybody under the age of 30 know what a plumb line is? I see older people shaking their heads. So for you children, a plumb line is essentially a line, a cord, a rope. It's a measuring tool, a construction tool where you would tie some sort of weight to the end of this cord and gravity's gonna make it come straight down. Right? The weight's not going to be here and you move the cord over here. If you move the cord, the weight's coming with it. Gravity's going to make that a straight line. That's the way it works. And so a builder would use this cord, this plumb line, to ensure that what he was building was straight and didn't look like the leaning tower of Pisa. He could hold up this plumb line and determine if it was quote unquote plumb, if it's upright, if it's straight. And if it's not, well, he's got some work to do. The builder had to work to fix it. And it could be that the wall is leaning so much 
that you get to a point where you just got to tear it down and rebuild the whole thing. It just sort of depends on how much it's leaning. So that's what Amos sees. And this is a really simple question, but it's important. Who gets to hold the plumb line, the builder or the wall? Hey, Brother Matt, <laughs> that's a pretty obvious question, right? The builder's the one holding the plumb line. Of course he is, because he's in charge. The one holding the plumb line has some ownership. He has some authority. It's implied because he's the one measuring the wall. What if someone came into your home with a tape measure, just busted through your front door and started measuring things? What would you say? Get out of here. Why? This is my house. <laughs> you, it doesn't matter if your furniture fits here. Get out. This is my house. God had every right to measure Israel. Not only is he the sovereign creator of all things, but what a unique way with them, right? He chose them. He made them his own nation. He rescued them from Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. They covenanted together. He had ownership and authority over them. He has every right to see if they are plumb with his standard. And there's scholars argue about what this plumb line represented, and it's sort of hilarious to me. Did this represent God's law? Did this represent God's righteousness? Was this representative of Jesus? I, there's no contradiction between any of those ideas. God's law demonstrates to us his righteousness, a righteousness that only Christ has ever had. So what does this represent? It represents God's perfect, righteous, holy standard. It's perfection. Now, obviously, the nation of Israel with their false worship, their greed, their immorality, they're not going to measure up to God's perfect, holy standard. They're going to be leaning, and the plumb line is going to prove that. So after this, Amos does not plead for God to forgive them, and he does not plead for God to stop the judgment. Now, I don't think Amos was wrong the first two visions to, to beg for forgiveness and to beg God to cease. I don't think he was wrong at all. But what God has done now is proven. And he has shown that they are leaning and they deserve judgment. So what else can Amos say now? So he said nothing. Instead, God said, I will never again pass by them. He was so patient, but even divine patience runs its course. And it was time for judgment. Verse 9 predicts how the centers for false worship would be destroyed, how the royal family that supported this, they would suffer. You can skip down to verse 11. We didn't read it, but verse 11 gives reference to this judgment. It's going to be with uh, the Assyrian invasion and captivity that's going to come upon Israel those, those people, the Assyrians, are going to be the, the bringers of God's judgment. What I want us to see with these three visions 
is that when God brought this judgment upon Israel, they would, the Assyrians would come and, and destroy the land and, and just take them captive and just disperse Israel. It's going to happen. But this was not a quick trigger anger of a frustrated parent who didn't know what else to do. It was perfectly timed judgment that was deserved. But at the same time, that judgment only came after so, so much patience. In Amos chapter four, Amos relays to the people that God has tried to get your attention over and over with sort of what we might call smaller judgments before the big one hit. God sent famines into Israel. He sent some droughts. He sent some blight and pestilence. He did those things before he had to send the Assyrians. And yet God repeated through Amos in chapter four, yet you did not return to me. So in our text this morning, God showed even more patience, thanks to the prayers of Amos, almost like a parent counting one, okay, two, okay, three. And this third vision showed that God's patience had run its course and he would not delay judgment anymore because it was right and it was what the people deserved. They're leaning, they're not meeting the standard. So what does any of this mean to you and me? This was a sermon from a prophet from Judah 2,500 years ago or so given to people I've never met. The principle of these visions is the same for you and me. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth and you will stand before him in judgment one day. How will you measure up to God's perfect standard? You're going to be leaning over a little bit. Will you miss that mark even, even a bit? Hey, brother, man, I'm better than a lot of people. Israel was not judged based upon the actions of any other nation. They were judged according to God's standard. So none of us will be compared to anyone else in judgment. You might be better than a whole lot of people, but a whole lot of people might be better than you. Hope you don't get next to them, right? God doesn't judge us by comparing us to other people. God's judgment is based upon his standards of perfection and holiness and righteousness. If you've ever read Romans, you know the Apostle Paul told them, no one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, spoiler alert, none of us are going to measure up. Not, not one of us stands up straight when God hangs the plumb line of his perfection next to us. But that's exactly why Jesus Christ came. God's only begotten son left glory, became a man, and he died sacrificially and rose majestically and triumphantly so that in him... We stand perfect in God's sight. Not because of anything we have done, but because of everything Jesus did for us. If you've repented and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you pass the test, not because of you, but because of Jesus.
So if you're not saved, you need to understand you cannot stand on your own in judgment before God. You won't measure up. You will be leaning and you'll suffer the eternal consequences of hell. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. Why not let God tear you down and rebuild you in Jesus? One of the reasons Jesus hasn't returned just yet is because of that amazing patience of God. Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. That's the promise of his return. Peter wrote this, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every day that Jesus does not return gives sinners one more chance to repent. And so just like with Israel and with these visions of Amos, if you're still here, God's being patient with you. Take advantage of God's patience. Because when your life is over or when Christ returns, it's too late. It's run its course. Trust Christ as your savior while God gives you the opportunity. I know many here have done that. I want you to consider that if you are saved, to keep letting God tear you down by his word and build you into a person that is more and more like his son every day. Let God tear away our selfishness. Let God tear away our pride. Let him remove the bricks of all those things that will hinder our service from him. And let's pray that through his word and through his spirit and through prayer and through our worship together that he builds us up into people that please him. Let's be so thankful God's patient with us. But be warned that judgment is coming. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, even now we are amazed at your power as we hear the thunder. You are so strong and so big. You have authority that we can't even grasp. So we thank you so much for your patience in our lives. And we thank you so much for Jesus and his love for us. Help us to continue to trust him. And Lord, build us up into people that please you. If there's someone here today who's lost and needs to trust Jesus for salvation, God, we pray for them. And anyone else who needs to make a decision to, to serve you more, I pray that your spirit would convict and they would submit. Father, we're, we're thankful for all of your blessings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.